is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. Dear listeners, Evan Schinner's here. Forgive my delay in restarting this podcast, but I think you may be glad to hear the reasons why. Firstly, I conducted an interview with Joshua Rifkin, the eminent keyboard player, conductor, and musicologist. If you recall a few episodes back, I did an episode dissecting Cantata 147. I featured Mr. Rifkin's recordings of it, and then I said, Mr. Rifkin, guest on my show. And so he did. We spoke for almost three hours and then, gasp, the audio on his end was lost. So we've been searching for the Zoom recording of this call, trying to recover the interview for you. And in the meantime, I performed the Goldberg Variations over the holidays and did some writing on them intended for this podcast. I wasn't going to cover the Goldberg Variations per se, but rather focus on the 14 additional canons found on the back of Bach's personal copy of the Goldbergs found in the 70s the 1970s. But then, while working out what I was going to say about these canons, I stumbled across something, a type of analysis that I thought to be, if this is even possible, a unique idea in these pieces that I believe, until now, no one has spoken on. And it was from here that I set about writing up this idea in a paper, and I'm going to start submitting this paper to Bach societies everywhere to indeed see if I've stumbled across an idea that no one else has. So, in the meantime, I will introduce those 14 canons to you in the next episode, followed by hopefully my unique discovery, followed by hopefully the Joshua Rifkin interview as quickly as possible. So, to spare not the lack of episodes these last few months does not mean there isn't anything planned or that I haven't been working away for you, the listener. So now, a personal anecdote. Last year, I was stranded in a London airport twice because, and I quote, the runway melted. If you were anywhere around London or the UK, you probably heard about this. It was the hottest day apparently ever in the United Kingdom. And I spent two separate days in a London airport waiting for two separate canceled flights. And I went to the same pub sort of restaurant airport place. You know, they're all they're all the same. It's called the Smithfield in the Luton Airport. Anyways, they have sort of in the corner of the restaurant an entire wall made up of books, old books so old they decided not to use the books as books but rather use the spines of all the books lined up and spray paint over them use use the spines as canvas so i was curious to know what they had spray painted over and it turns out they had painted over a 14th edition of the encyclopedia britannica if you're like me you're more or less born with the internet and maybe you've never actually flipped through a physical encyclopedia But I was particularly curious, as I had just been reading the wonderful story by one of my favorite authors, Jorge Luis Borges. I think we've spoken to him, I think we've spoken about him on this podcast anyhow, Uh, Borges from South America, B-O-R-G-E-S. He writes a magical story featuring the Encyclopedia Britannica, where the narrator swears he's just seen an article in a 1902 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, an article about a culture and a people living in a land called Ukbar, U-Q-B-A-R. 
I'll put a link to the story in the episode description. It's only 5,600 words. I highly recommend it. Anyhow, my attention was piqued. Here I was with an Encyclopedia Britannica from the 60s, and it didn't take me long before I just was curious to see what they were saying about Bach in the 1960s. The author of the Bach article is Donald Francis Tovey, who was already dead from 1940 on, but still this was his article in the 60s edition. I was taken with this article. And like my favorite Bach writing, probably that of Albert Schweitzer, I'm not reacting to the scholarship, much of which has been improved upon, but rather the tone, the sincerity. And in this case, since Tovey was an Englishman, this is Donald Francis Tovey, T-O-V-E-Y. He was an Englishman and his use of the English language and writing about Bach was so powerful. I'm going to read some of this article to you and encourage you to buy old copies of the Encyclopedia Britannica before they get spray-painted on and scattered in random airports. And what's exciting about something like a physical encyclopedia as opposed to Wikipedia is that you go from the Bach article to bacteriology. You know, you just turn the page and it's there, and you don't really go from Bach to bacteriology clicking around on, on Wikipedia. It's wonderful and it's fascinating, and you end up reading a lot of things that you would never read just by an online encyclopedia. So I'm going to read some of this article for you. This is the Bach article from the 1926 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica I have. It's the same article, by the way, uh, from Donald Francis Tovey. Then I'll play a wild fugue for you at the end in an unequal temperament, and we'll call it a wrap, and I'll see you next time. So let me get some nice background music here. Maybe the orchestral suites by the Bush chamber players played super slowly. So here it is, from Donald Francis Tovey in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Bach, Johann Sebastian, 1685-1750, German musical composer. The Bach family was of importance in the history of music for nearly 200 years. Four branches of it were known at the beginning of the 16th century, and in 1561 we hear of Hans Bach of Wechmar, who was believed to be the father of Veit Bach, born about 1555. The family genealogy, drawn up by Johann Sebastian Bach himself and completed by his son Philip Emanuel, describes Feitbach as the founder of the family, a baker and a miller, quote, whose zither must have sounded very pretty among the clattering of the mill wheels. His son, Hans Bach, der Spielmann, is the first professional musician of the family. Of Hans's largest family, the second son, Christoph, was the grandfather of Sebastian Bach. Another son, Heinrich of Arnstadt, had two sons, Johann Michael and Johann Christoph, who are among the greatest of J.S. Bach's forerunners. Johann Christoph now being supposed, although this is still disputed, to be the author of the splendid motet Islache dies nicht, I Wrestle and Pray, formerly attributed to Sebastian Bach. Another descendant of Veit Bach, Johann Ludwig was admired more than any other ancestor by Sebastian, who copied 12 of his church cantatas and sometimes added work of his own to them. The Bach family never left Thuringia until the sons of Sebastian went into a more modern world. Through all the misery of the peasantry at the period of the Thirty Years' War, this clan maintained its position and produced musicians who, however local their fame, were among the greatest in Europe. So numerous and so eminent were they that in Erfurt, musicians were known as Bachs, even when there was no longer any members of the family in the town. Sebastian Bach 
thus inherited the artistic tradition of a united family whose circumstances had deprived them of the distractions of the century of musical fermentation which in the rest of Europe had destroyed polyphonic music. I just want to read that sentence again, because that's, you know, you don't get this, you don't get this writing anymore. Sebastian Bach thus inherited the artistic tradition of a united family whose circumstances had deprived them of the distractions of the century of musical fermentation, which in the rest of Europe had destroyed polyphonic music. Johann Sebastian Bach was baptized at Eisenach on the 23rd of March, 1685. His parents died in his 10th year and his elder brother, Johann Christoph, organist at Ordruf, took charge of him and taught him music. The elder brother is said to have been jealous of Sebastian's talent and to have forbidden him access to a manuscript volume of works by Froberger, Buxtehude, and other great organists. Every night for six months, Sebastian got up, put his hand through the lattice of the bookcase, and copied the volume out by moonlight, to the permanent ruin of his eyesight, as is shown by all the extant portraits of him at a later age and by blindness of his last years. When he had finished, his brother discovered the copy and took it away from him. In 1700, Sebastian, now 15 and thrown on his own resources by the death of his brother, went to Lüneberg, where his beautiful soprano voice obtained him an appointment at the school of St. Michael as chorister. He seems, however, to have worked more at instrumental than at vocal music. Apart from the chorister's routine, his position provided only for his general education, as we know little about his definite musical instructors. In any case, he owed his musical development mainly to his own incessant study of classical and contemporary composers, such as Frescobaldi, Caspar Carroll, Buxtehude, Froberger, Muffet the Elder, Pachelbel, and probably Johann Joseph Fuchs the author of the Gratis Ad Parnassum, on which all later classical composers were trained. A prettier and no less authentic story than that of his brother's forbidden organ volume tells how, on his return from one of the many holiday expeditions which Bach made from Hamburg on foot to hear the great Dutch organist Reinken, he sat outside an inn longing for the dinner he could not afford when two herring heads were flung out of the window and he found in each of them a ducat with which he promptly paid his way not home, but back to Hamburg. At Hamburg also, Kaiser was laying the foundations of German opera on a splendid scale which must have fired Bach's imagination, though it never directly influenced his style. On the other hand, Kaiser's church music was of immense importance in his development. In Celle, the famous Hofkapelle brought the influence of French music to bear upon Bach's art, an influence which inspired nearly all of his works in sweet form and to which his many autographed copies of Couperin's music bear testimony. Indeed, there is no branch of music from Palestrina onwards conceivably accessible in Bach's time of which we do not find specimens carefully copied in his own handwriting. On the other hand, when Bach at the age of 19 became organist at Arnstadt, he found Lübeck within easy distance, and there, in October 1705, he went to hear Buxtehude, whose organ works show so close an affinity to Bach's style that only their lack of coherence as holes reveals to the attentive listener that with all their nobility they are not by Bach himself. Bach's enthusiasm for Buxtehude caused him to outstay his leave by three months, and this, together with his habit of astonishing the congregation by the way he harmonized the chorales, got him into trouble. But he was already too great an ornament to be lightly dismissed, and though his answers to the complaints of the authorities, every word of which makes amusing reading in the archives of the church, were spirited rather than satisfactory, 
and the consistorium had to add to their complaints the grave scandal of his allowing a, quote, strange maiden to sing in the church. Bach was able to maintain his position at Arnstadt until he obtained the organist ship of St. Blasius in Mülthausen in 1707. Here he married his cousin, easily identified with the strange maiden of Arnstadt, and here he wrote his first great church cantatas, Aus der Tiefe, Gottes mein König and Gottes Zeit. Bach's mastery of the keyboard attracted universal attention and prevented his ever being unemployed. In 1708, he went to Weimar where his successes were crowned by his appointment in 1714 at the age of 29 as Hofkonzertmeister to the Duke of Weimar. Here the composition of sacred music was one of his most congenial duties and the great cantata Ich hatte viel Berkümenes was probably the first work of his new office. In 1717, Bach visited Dresden in the course of a concert tour and was induced to challenge the arrogant French organist J. Louis Marchand, who was making himself thoroughly disliked by the German musicians who could not deny his powers. Bach was first given an opportunity of listening secretly to Marchand's playing, then a competition on the organ was proposed, and a day was fixed for the tournament at which all the court and musical celebrities of the town were to be present to see nothing less than the issue between French and German music. Marchand took up the challenge contemptuously, but it would appear that he was also allowed to listen secretly to Bach's playing, for on the day of the tournament, the only news of him was that he had left Dresden by the earliest coach. The triumph was followed by Bach's appointment as Kapellmeister to the Duke of Curtin, a post which he held from 1717 to 1723. The Curtin period is that of Bach's central instrumental works, such as the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier, the solo violin and violoncello sonatas, the Brandenburg concertos, the French and English suites. In 1723, finding his position at Curtin uninspiring for chorale music, he moved to Leipzig, where he became cantor of the Thomas Schule, being still able to retain his post as visiting Kapellmeister at Curtin, besides a similar position at Weissenfels. His wife had died in 1720, leaving seven children, of whom Friedemann and Philip Emanuel had a great future before them. In December 1721, Bach married again, and for the beautiful soprano voice of his second wife, he wrote many of his most inspired arias. She was a great help to him with all his work, and her musical handwriting soon became so like his own that her copies are difficult to distinguish from his autographs. In 1729, Bach heard that Handel was for a second time visiting Halle on his way back to London from Italy. A former attempt of Bach's to meet Handel had failed, and now he was too ill to travel, so he sent his son to Halle to invite Handel to Leipzig but the errand was not successful, and much to Bach's disappointment, he never met his only compeer. Bach so admired Handel that he made a manuscript copy of his Passion nach Brocks. This work, though almost unknown in England then as now, was next to the oratorios of Kaiser, incomparably the finest passion then accessible, as Graun's beautiful masterpiece Der Tod Jesu was not composed until four years after Bach's death. The disgusting poems of Brachs, which was set by every German composer of the time, was transformed by Bach with real literary skill as the groundwork of the non-scriptural numbers in his Passion According to St. John. All Bach's most colossal achievements, such as the Passion According to St. Matthew and the B minor Mass, for discussion which see oratorio and Mass, date from his cantorship at Leipzig. But important and congenial as was his position there, and smooth as the course of his life seems to have been until his death at 1750, he must have had quite as much experience as can have been good for him. He was often ruffled by the town councillors of Leipzig, who, like his earlier employers at Arnstadt, were shocked by the, quote, unecclesiastical style of his compositions and by his independent bearing. 
but he had more serious troubles. Of his seven children by his first wife, only three survived him. By his second wife, he had 13 children, of whom he lost four of the six sons. For the head of so large a family, his post was dignified rather than lucrative, and few documents tell a prouder tale of uncomplaining thrift than the inventory of his possessions made after his death. One can only be thankful that he did not live to see anything but the wonderful promise of his son Friedemann, who, in the words of the brilliantly successful K. Philip Emanuel Bach, was more nearly capable of replacing his father than all the rest of the family together. The prospect of complete loss of the tradition of his own polyphonic art he faced with equanimity, saying of the new style, which in the hands of his own son, Philip Emanuel, was soon to eclipse it for the next hundred years, quote, the art has advanced to great heights. The old style of music no longer pleases our modern ears. But it would have broken his heart if he had foreseen that Friedemann Bach was to attain a disreputable old age after a dissolute and unproductive life. The brilliant successes of Philip Emanuel led to his appointment as court composer to the King of Prussia, and hence, in 1747, to Sebastian's being summoned to visit Frederick the Great at Potsdam, an incident which Bach always regarded as the culmination of his career, much as Dr. Johnson regarded his interview with George III. Bach had to play on the numerous newly invented pianofortes of Silbermann, which the king had bought, also to try the organs of the churches of Potsdam. Frederick, whose musical reputation rested on a genuine, if narrow, basis, gave him a splendid theme on which to extemporize, and on that theme Bach afterwards wrote Das Musikalische Opfer. Two years after this, his sight began to fail, and before long, he shared the fate of Handel in becoming perfectly blind. Bach died of apoplexy on the 28th of July, 1750. His loss was deplored as that of one of the greatest organists and clavier players of his time. Of his compositions, comparatively little was known. At the death, his manuscript works were divided amongst his sons, and many of them have been lost. Only a small fraction of his greater works was recovered when, after the lapse of nearly a century, the verdict of his neglectful posterity was reversed by the modern upholders of polyphonic art. Even now, some important works are still apparently irrecoverable. The rediscovery of Bach is closely connected with the name of Mendelssohn, who was amongst the first to proclaim by word and deed the powers of a genius too gigantic to be grasped by three generations, by the enthusiastic endeavors of Mendelssohn, Schumann, and others, and in England still earlier by the performances and publications of Wesley and Crotch. The circle of Bach's worshippers rapidly increased. In 1850, a century after his death, a society was started for the correct publication of all Bach's remaining works. Robert Franz, the great songwriter, did good service in arranging some of Bach's finest works for modern performance until the experience of a purer scholarship could prove not only the possibility, but the incomparably greater beauty of a strict adherence to Bach's own scoring. The porson of Bach scholarship, however, is Wilhelm Rust, grandson of the interesting composer of that name who wrote polyphonic suites and fantasies early in the 19th century. During the 14 years of his editorship of the Bach Gesellschaft, he displayed a steady increasing insight into Bach's style, which has never since been rivaled. In more than one case, he has restored harmonies of priceless value from incomplete texts by means of research and reasoning, which he sums up in a modest footnote that reads as something self-evident. His prefaces to the Bach Gesellschaft volumes are perhaps the most valuable contributions to the criticism of 18th century music ever written. Spitta's great biography not accepted. And here we get to my really the favorite part of this, of this article. 
This is Tuffy now. I've, I picture him shooting from the hip in his very stodgy British way. He, he's shooting from the hip about what Bach means to, to the time, and, and it's beautiful. Bach's importance in the history of music cannot be exaggerated. His art, neglected as old-fashioned and crabbed by his younger contemporaries, survived only in certain limited aspects as the subject of desultory and unintelligent academic study until its rediscovery by Mendelssohn. And yet, whatever disguise may have been foisted on it by corrupt traditions and ignorance of its idioms, whenever any fragment of it gained the inner ear of a true composer, the effect on the history of music was immediate and profound. Indeed, his influence is by no means chiefly manifested in the time when his work became known in its larger aspects, though the Bach revival is very obviously connected with certain tendencies in the romantic movement in music. But however clear we may consider Bach's claim to the title of, quote, the first of romanticists, the full influence of his whole work has hardly yet begun to show itself. The labors of the Bach Gesellschaft have occupied more than 50 years, during which about four-fifths of Bach's choral works have been published for the first time, and it would be surprising if another 50 years sufficed to make these adequately known to the world at large. Except for practical difficulties, as when Bach writes for obsolete instruments, the only reason why some cantatas are better known than others is that a beginning must be made somewhere. It is clear, then, that the influence of Bach's art as an understood whole, is still undeveloped. In the past history of music, his part was hardly suspected except by the great composers themselves, and, to anyone contemplating the art of the generation after him, it might have seemed that both he and Handel had worked in vain. Yet his was the most subtle and universal force in the development of music, even when his musical language seemed hopelessly forgotten. Mozart, when rapidly advancing to the height of his mastery, had but to read the Baron von Sweeten's manuscript copies of the motets and the well-tempered clavier, and his style, quite apart from his immediate essays in the old art forms, and apart also from the influence of his study of Handel, developed a new polyphonic richness and depth of harmony which steadily increased until his untimely death. Beethoven studied all the accessible works of Bach profoundly and frequently quoted them in his sketchbooks, often with a direct bearing on his own works. His rendering of the well-tempered clavier is said to be recorded in the marks of expression and tempo given in Czerny's edition, and if that record is true, Beethoven must have been completely in the dark as to Bach's meaning in many important respects, but art is full of such illustrations of the way in which great minds influence each other in spite of every barrier which diversity of language and time can set. Perhaps the only great composers who escaped the direct influence of Bach are Gluck and Berlioz. Even Gluck reproduced in every detail of harmony and figure the first 12 bars of the jig of Bach's B-flat clavier partita in the aria Je t'emploie et je tremble. But plagiarism, however unconscious, is a very different thing from that profound indebtedness which makes many a great man attain his truest originality, and Gluck's training practically deprived him of Bach's direct influence, useful as that would have been to the attainment of his aims in harmonic and choral expression. The indirect influence no one could escape, for whatever in modern music is not traceable to Sebastian Bach is traceable to his sons, who were encouraged by their father in the cultivation of those infant art forms, which were soon to dazzle the world into the belief that his own work was obsolete. And now this is truly the paragraph here that made me decide to read this article for you. Bach's place in music is thus 
far higher than that of a reformer or even an inventor of new forms. He is a spectator of all musical time and existence, to whom it is not of the smallest importance whether a thing be new or old, so long as it is true. I'll read it again. I like it. Bach's place in music is thus far higher than that of a reformer or even an inventor of new forms. He is a spectator of all musical time and existence, to whom it is not of the smallest importance whether a thing be new or old, so long as it is true. It is doubtful whether even the forms most peculiar to him, such as the arpeggio prelude, are of his invention. Yet he left no forms as he found it, not even that most conventional of all, the de capo aria, which he did not outwardly alter in the least. On the other hand, with every form he touched, he said the last word. All the material that can be assimilated into a mature art, he vitalized in his own way, and he had no imitators. The language of music changed at his death, and his influence became all-pervading, just because he was not the prophet of the new art, but an unbiased seeker of truth. And I think that's about where I'm going to stop with this article. There's a lot more. He mentions in specific how Bach changed certain pre-existing forms, but just a few things to note. First, like I mentioned, already some of that knowledge has been improved upon. Uh, we know that from our interview with Robert Hill on this podcast, the story at the beginning of Tavi's article about the older brother being jealous of his talent and taking the notebook away, Hill has a more logical explanation for that. The duo, the so-called duel between uh, Louis Marchand and Bach. I don't know if I spoke about on this podcast. I think that was probably in my performer's audio commentary on my performance, my own performance of the Chromatic Fantasy and Fugue from my latest Fantasia's album. Uh, we, we might have a more logical explanation for that, although, of course, as an anecdote, it's, it's great. I love what he says about the Bach Gesellschaft and how it was sort of perplexing everyone's mind and how as they started getting deeper and deeper into the work of Bach, they started to learn more and then they had to go and redo everything. Uh, and that's the same thing that happens, in fact, with the Neue Bachausgabe, the, the 20th century effort to do the same thing that they were trying to do in the 19th century, was that at the completion, we know this now from the Christoph Wolf interview, Wolf says, ah, I was happy to be at the Neue Bachausgabe when the final edition came in, and I was there to greet the first edition of the Neue Neue Bachausgabe, because you keep getting further into this composer and you realize there's more to do. Now that I've seen all this, I must go back and ratify what I originally thought. So now on to the fugue that I was going to mention. Oh, and I forgot to mention something. In the last episode about tuning, I uh, apparently said Johann Strauss when I meant Richard Strauss. Obviously, also Sprach Zarathustra. That's uh, just a slip of the tongue and the brain, I suppose. So thanks to my listener who pointed that out. Let's go to the fugue now in an unequal temperament. This is BWV 959. It's a very interesting fugue. It makes sense to play this in an unequal temperament because we have these very audacious sort of leaps. This is in the subject. And this, this is a major third, E to G sharp. And then we have a minor third, A to C. And then we have, this is an augmented second. This is C to D sharp, which is important that we hear the difference of these three intervals shrinking. Major third minor third, augmented second. So please enjoy this fugue and then sit back and wait patiently for the next episode because I'm bringing them to you. Thank you for listening.
You got to share the We exist because of your feedback and donations. Without your feedback and donations, without your support, the rest is silence. Share this podcast with your friends. Don't listen to this podcast alone. Send it to your middle school band teacher. Did you learn an instrument once? Who taught you? Send it to them.